hello and welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and founder of This Is HCD and CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, where we provide live online design and innovation classes, providing training for service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers, content designers, and much, much more. Now, in this episode, I'm delighted to welcome David Dylan Thomas, author of the new book, from a book apart called Designing for Cognitive Bias. Now we speak openly about bias in the design sphere and what we can do to mitigate its presence right from the start of our very own projects. David was a wonderful guest and also facilitated a wonderful live event for the This Is Hate CD Berlin community and it's now available on YouTube and I'll add a link to that in the show notes. But let's get straight into this episode. David, Dylan, Thomas, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you? Uh, good. How are you doing? I'm doing okay at the moment. We're we're in September here and Ireland is going through a heat wave. It's 12 degrees. I'm only joking. It's mid 20s, which is probably, <laughs> I don't know, like the 80s or something for uh, people who, who work in Fahrenheit. But we're getting on okay, like, you know. So tell us, David, let's kick off. Tell me whereabouts you're coming from today and what does it look like in, in your world? So I am in uh, Media, Pennsylvania, which is just outside Philadelphia, and uh, we are actually getting fall weather, which is weird for us. If you live anywhere mm. in Philly, you know that we get one week of fall and one week of spring, and then everything else is winter or summer. So for us to get fall on time is weird. It's like yeah. more evidence of global warming. We're just like, <laughs> yeah, that stuff isn't happening the way it's supposed to. <laughs> it's funny. I did a session this morning with people from Scotland and they were saying it's all gray and all that. And I was like, well, like it used to be like that in Ireland, but people talk about global warming in the negative sense. In Ireland, we're getting good weather for the first time in a very long time, but obviously it's not a good thing. We know that it's, it needs to change. We all need to change. David, we're here talking to you today because you wrote a very popular book that, as I was saying to you before, when we started speaking, every time I open up LinkedIn or the, or the web or Twitter, David, Dylan, Thomas is there. Someone's holding the book. It's doing well. Tell us what the book is called. It's called Design for Cognitive Bias. And it's all about how, as designers, uh, part of our job, a big part of our job, is helping people make decisions. But if we don't understand how people really make decisions, which involves bias, then we're not going to be very good at our job. So it's me trying to help with that and talk about how design impacts bias uh, some of our own biases as designers and how dangerous those can be, uh, and just really trying to make us better at our jobs. Yeah. So before you you started writing the book, what was it you did before that? So I'm a, a content strategist. I've been doing that for like 10, 15 years. And over the course of the years, I started to become really interested in cognitive bias, especially after seeing a talk by Iris Bonnet called Gender Equality by Design, mm. where she lays out the idea that pattern recognition is behind a lot of implicit and explicit bias. That affects things like who gets hired to be a web developer. And when I saw that that kind of behavior can come down to something as simple as pattern recognition, I became obsessed with learning everything I could about cognitive bias. And mm. eventually that knowledge kind of mixed with my day job <laughs> to where I'm realizing, oh, so if we design this way, that might impact this uh, other bias here. Oh, we yeah. need to do something about that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's a huge problem. It's actually something that I've been looking to learn more about myself. It's something that I'm aware that I probably need to do more self-work to understand my own cognitive biases and where they lay. I kind of have an assumption of where they might be. So I'm mm -hmm. looking forward to, to digging a little bit deeper into the book myself, but I'm also looking forward to learning more around how you are seeing 
that new learning that you've learned over the last couple of years and how it's changed how you work as a content strategist. Tell me about that. Sure. So the truth is, I'm, I'm, it's funny, like the work around expressing all of this and writing the book and talking about mm. the book has actually pulled me away some <laughs> from the sort of day-to-day right. client work, but it's illuminating that work in a lot of ways. So I can kind of look back mm. on projects I've had and sort of see, oh, that's why this was difficult or that's why this went the way it did. And, and I draw on that for the book, but it does help me sort of like retroactively look back and see things like, oh, it helps me understand what to prioritize or what why it worked well to prioritize. So, so for example, uh, goal setting. Like kickoff is an extremely critical moment in any project because mm. so many biases are set up then. So for example, when you define the goal of a project or what your criteria for success are, you may not realize it, but you've now defined what risk means for the rest of that project, right? So if a project manager's job is mitigating risk in part, right? If you say, okay, this project is not successful unless we bring it in on time. If we go one day over, it's, it's a failure. Okay, for the rest of the project, what is the project manager going to be looking at every single day, right? Yeah. Or if you define, okay, if we don't learn more about X by the end of this project, right, it's not a success. Okay, well, now the project manager is thinking about what are we learning, which I think personally is more interesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like metric, yeah. But either way, it's how we're going to translate risk for the rest of the project. And that's just one factor, right? But all of the different biases that can impact a project, a lot of them get established in that phase between basically selling the project and kickoff, (laughs) right? That is a really, really fertile, vital time. And at the time, I didn't realize it. But now that I've kind of studied these things, I can kind of look back and be like, oh, yeah, we really Mm. needed to talk about that three months earlier. (laughs) Yeah, and it's usually a pretty... So, so, well, in my experience, they can be quite rushed you know, from the time yeah. of procurement to like, we need it now. When do you need it? Can it start tomorrow? And then we don't give it that sort of space to breathe and space to really focus on it and give us the attention that it needs. So we've agreed on that. But what, what are the things that you're seeing that you say when you look back retro, retroactively on it? What are the things that you do differently? That I would do differently? Yeah. I mean, like magic wand time, I would (laughs) be like really changing. Well, one thing I'd really be looking at is the incentivization. I think it's weird that, or I would be curious to see what would happen in most places I've worked. Sales is incentivized differently than the rest of the company. So sales is usually based on commission. Whereas the rest of the company, I make the same amount of money regardless of how the project goes like yeah. that, that has no impact on my yeah. salary. And I don't know, I would be curious to see what happened if, if it were different. One thing I think that can happen is that going back to that whole idea of you were talking about how quickly people feel the need to move. Mm. There is an urgency around sales. If my commission is time-based right? I don't get that commission until the sale closes. Well, then I'm, I'm, I'm incentivized for that close to happen earlier. And I've known plenty of salespeople who are really good about this and don't let that cloud their judgment, but there are plenty that do. <laughs> and yeah, it absolutely. becomes not about serving the greater good. It comes not even about serving the company. I am now incentivized to put myself above the company, right? Yeah. And just make sure to close the sale. Because I've dealt, you know, when I was in the publishing world, I dealt with some pretty unethical sales folk who were really just interested in getting something good for themselves in a way, yeah, in a way that would actually not be good for users and not be good for even the company, frankly. Yeah. 
And so I questioned that incentivization practice. That might be one magic wand thing I do. Mm. Uh, And the other is to sort of sell inclusive design into the project itself. So one inclusive design practice is to, at the beginning of a project, everybody on the team basically lays bare their backgrounds, right? Their intersectionalities. I am a black man. I am an American citizen. English is my first language. You know, all the different things that will influence the design in, in ways that we may not be aware. Yeah. And then we ask, okay, well, who's perspectives aren't represented here, right? Is anybody on our team formerly incarcerated? Is everybody on our team, is anybody on our team like ever not been a citizen? And how is that going to influence the outcome? And then yeah. we plans to say, okay, how are we going to mitigate that? How are we going to invite those in additional ex- perspectives to the project, right? None of that works if that isn't in the budget. So imagine one thing I might do retrospectively is to make that be a part of the budget to say, we are going to make room for that. And then add a little bit of wiggle room with our research, for example, to say, oh, we need to talk to these people who are going to get impacted. So that step in between, you know, whatever, starting and the team forming and stuff, it's, it's really that precursor to, to kind of doing that. So those bits that you were talking about there, you're saying you're a black man and you're American, your first language is English. Are those co-created? Are those aspects co-created like in in a workshop? Or is there some sort of predefined checklist that you have that's within the book? So, and it's funny too, like a lot of this I didn't- Like a matrix. Yeah, yeah. A lot of this I didn't discover, that particular exercise I didn't discover until after I'd finished the book. (laughs) All right, (laughs) because I know know of one. Really? Okay, I'd love to find out. So I I get, it's interesting. Like I'm looking for those. So definitely pass that along to me. Yeah. I, so I've done this as uh, I do an inclusive design workshop and I've done this as part of that workshop. And the way I phrased it is in the instructions, I give you some like options, sort of more common ones like gender, age, you know, ability. Mm. But I also kind of want to leave it open because what I discover is that when people work on this, they find these aspects that they never even thought of, like the, the formerly incarcerated one. There's a group, oh, I'm going to blank on their name right now, Project Inkblot. Project Inkblot is uh, an inclusive design sort of initiative, and their initial kind of round of trying to incorporate this, they realized that they hadn't even considered whether or not uh, one of the dimensions was whether or not you'd ever been incarcerated, which in America, at least, you're talking about 2 million people, right? That is not a small (laughs) demographic. And so they kind of retroactively tried to go back and sort of improve on that, but that's not one that you commonly see in those matrices. So I try to give starter intersectionalities and identities to get people thinking, but then I kind of let them like find those intersectionalities that I might not have considered. So I'm very curious to hear like what you've seen in terms of trying yeah. to graph all that. It's interesting. I, I it's, I'm going back a number of years now. Uh, there was a matrix that I, I had seen in a workshop that allowed people to sort of identify using this as a, as a probe or as a tool, but I'm really interested to, to talk more around that. But look, can I ask you one more uh, question before we before we move on? Is how do you define cognitive bias? Oh, sure. I mean, a cognitive bias is just a fancy word for a shortcut gone wrong. So we need to make something like a trillion decisions a day. Like even right now, I'm making decisions about what to do with my hands, where to look, how fast yeah. to talk. And if I think carefully about every single one of those decisions, uh, I'm never going to get anything done. So mm-hmm. most of our lives are thankfully on autopilot. But sometimes those shortcuts that your mind is taking to get you through the day lead to error. And those errors we call biases. There are these tendencies, these weird, funny things we do that don't really make any sense, but are just your mind trying to say, look, I'm busy. I just need to get this done. Let's move on. Yeah. 
it's funny because in my experience with cognitive bias, when it's been presented amongst teams, it's almost seen as there's a certain amount of shame mm-hmm. and it's been accepted as like, oh, you know, I'm open-minded, but, and it's, it's seen almost as an attack when it's been brought into the conversation. And it's definitely gone through a reframing in the last, I'd say specifically 12 months, cognitive biases kind of, I don't like saying it's come into vogue, but within the design community, it's, it's been spoken a lot more about, and it's, it's okay to talk about your own biases, I guess. Where do you think that shift has come from? What's, what's caused this? I think that, you know, I'll even say this with the international reckoning with the race is part of that. But mm. in order for us to move forward in any discussion about systemic change, we, we need to talk about shame, right? And we need to distinguish, yeah. and I'm always careful to do this, we need to distinguish between explicit and implicit bias. That the stuff I'm talking about in the book is not people who wake up in the morning thinking black people are worse than white people, men are better than women. Like if that is like, if I ask you that question and you're like, oh yeah, men are definitely better than women. Okay. This book is not for you. I can't help you. <laughs> like if on the other hand, you wake Fair up in the tough. morning, right. <laughs> if on the other hand, you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh yeah, I voted for Barack. I voted for Hillary. I'm down. I'm down for women and black people having power and they're, you know, just as worthy and blah, 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 blah. But when you see a woman's name at the top of a resume and you unconsciously start being more critical of that resume, or you're interviewing a black person and you sit just a little bit further away and you don't even realize it, okay, this is the type of bias I'm trying to help combat because that's stuff that's happening like at the speed of light. Like you don't even realize you did it. And that's why the shame conversation gets complicated, right? It's like, I can't blame you for something you didn't realize you did. What I can do is say, okay, now that you know you have this vulnerability and this tendency, right? What do we, we, we are now responsible for acting on that and saying, okay, maybe we need to start removing names from resumes. Maybe we need to start uh, having multiple people interview people. Maybe, you know, we need to start thinking about how do we either mitigate those biases or even use them for good, right? Because some of these biases can actually lead to pro-social behavior. Yeah. Everything you're saying is just an overload to my brain at the moment. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm processing this as you're speaking and I'm like, yeah, so some of it I haven't even considered. When you talk about, say, the cognitive bias and they self-identify or they identify through group work, there's obviously a change there that, that needs to happen. And within the book or within organizations that you're working with, is that support there to help them move the dial in that direction, in the right direction? And, and if so, what does that look like? I mean, it looks like the, the really thinking about the budget, right? So when I do this as a, I do an inclusive design workshop, and, and one of the things I kind of leave people with is sort of a set of challenges or really an action plan to say, okay, here are the things you need to write down. You need to write down how are you going to operationalize this assumption audit is what I call that exercise of like, okay identifying risk. Like, how are you going to operationalize this assumption? How Talk about how, write down, how are you going to make budget for this, right? Mm. Or there's another exercise called red team, blue team, which I can tell you about. And, and it's basically a team coming in and kind of taking one other team's work and kind of assessing it for bias or assessing it for potential harm, but it takes a day. Okay. Yeah. Write down, how are you going to fit this into the budget or how are you going to make budget around this? Because what I've learned even before I really studied bias, just by being in the world, is that at a company or if you're working for a client, if a activity is not in the budget, it does not exist. 
Yeah. Right. It does not have support until someone says, we are going to allocate funds to make sure this happens. A person is not going to do a job until we say, we are going to pay you. Like think about QA, right? If you were building a website, there is no way in this day and age, you release it into the wild until there's been a round of QA and you hire people specifically to do that QA and you pay them well. Yeah. Think of this as ethical QA, right? Yeah getting to the point where you are as concerned about the ethical impact of that design as you are about the simple, will it work when people click on the button yeah. element of design. Yeah. That's kind of what, what I'm preaching. So cognitive bias, we spoke about it in terms of a precursor at the start of a project, but this is much more intrinsic and it goes deep and it goes into the entire design life cycle and beyond the design life cycle. So in terms of cognitive bias and support, what does that look like in terms of both the book and also the workshop, but also like for designers in the future? I mean, I think it becomes a, a community of practice, honestly. Like, so I'm in, in charge of helping roll out like what inclusive design looks like at uh, my company, Think Company, which is an experienced design firm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're trying to get better at this too. And for the, the approach we've landed on isn't, okay, let's form a committee. It's going to be an inclusive design committee. And we're going to have a lot of meetings and come up with a big plan, a 12 point plan. That's going to have like, that approach is a meeting engine. <laughs> okay. It's designed to produce meetings. It is not designed to produce results. Okay. So the approach we're taking is more of a community of practice approach to say, okay, this is something every designer is responsible for understanding. And we're going to create the resources to do it, but we're also going to create very tangible actions that are going to become parts of projects. So for example, that assumption audit I talked about, like what I like about it is that it's not a huge ask in Mm. terms of budget, right? Like you can probably do a decent version of that meeting in about one or two hours. Okay. And so I can go to the person in charge of the budget and say, Hey, can I have one or two hours of the team's time pre kickoff to just do this? Right. And you do that with two, three projects and you see what kind of results you get. And then you say, okay, can we add an hour to the kickoff with the client to integrate what we learned in our pre-audit? Like, can we, can we kind of make that a part of our kickoffs now? Okay. Now that's one more hour, right? Now that's three hours added to the budget. Right. Okay. And eventually we get to the point where it's like, oh, we want to do red team, blue team. I need one team for one day, which is a bigger ask, but it's also one team for one day. Yeah. And we budget that, right? And that that's how organizations work. I don't even necessarily think like it's an evil thing. It's like it's how you have to schedule if you're paying people to do work. <laughs> you can't just say, hey, stop that, do this instead. It's like, but that incremental and incremental like has a bad rep for a good reason. But in terms of incremental but with substance, right? Yeah. I am actually changing something, but I'm not asking for a lot all at once. In terms of ethically there's no sale to me to be done in this. Okay. I'm playing, I'm playing devil's advocate in a lot of ways. Sure. In terms of you having those conversations and you're, you're kind of asking for permission to, to get time and to get space to do this thing. What is in it for the business? Why would a business now? I know the answer, but I, I want to know <laughs> what's the kind of thing that you give to a business to say why you should do this. What's in it for them? One of the things I talk about in the book is stakeholder biases, right? Because just like yeah. your stakeholders have biases as well. And one of them is loss aversion. Typically, a conservative risk-averse organization is really feeling something called loss aversion. And it's the idea, it hurts more to lose something than it feels good to get something. 
So it hurts twice as much to lose $10 as it feels good to find $10. So organizations, if you're trying to convince them to do something they might see as risky, it isn't actually about saying the upside, ironically. Okay. It usually tends to be more about showing the downside. So if a organization has a lousy uh, content management system that they keep using year after year and everybody hates it, everybody knows it sucks, but there's a sunk cost fallacy. Oh, we already spent so much on this. How can we stop now? Or there's a status quo bias of, yeah, but it's the devil we know, right? You see that all the time. The way out of that isn't necessarily to say, well, here's this shiny new CMS. And if you get it, everyone's going to be happy. You're going to make a lot of money and uh, unicorns are going to walk down the hallways, you know, farting rainbows like that. (laughs) That approach isn't going to be as effective or isn't as likely to be as effective as saying, oh yeah, if you keep using this CMS, here's how much money you're going to lose next quarter. Here's how many people who are going to quit in the next year. Here's how much it's going to cost to retrain them. Like that scares the shit out of people. And that actually gets them moving to say, okay, I consider this risky, but the apocalypse picture you just painted that sounds worse to me. So I'm willing to take the risk to avoid that loss. Mm. So, I mean, that's one tool in your tool belt when it comes to like thinking about those motivations, but ironically, it's less about showing the, and the other, the other problem I have with like showing the upside, frankly, is that even if I can say it's more cost effective to do the right thing, it's not necessarily always going to be true. And there's a lot of cases where it's really cost effective to do the wrong thing. So I'm not going to try to use money to motivate you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's it's a conversation about ethics at its core. And to me, I like to work for businesses that have got strong purpose and ethics uh, at their core of their business models. So it's easier for me to talk about this stuff with clients that I work with and so forth. And it's more difficult to sell something like this, in, I imagine, into organizations that don't have that at the center of their organization. Yeah, but what what I find is that, I mean, that's true. What I find is that, and maybe I've been lucky, but money is never the thing per Mm. se. There's usually a reason you've chosen to make money the way you've chosen to make it. There's a reason you've chosen pharmaceuticals. There's a reason you've chosen military contracting. There's a reason you've chosen finance, right? Yeah. That's like the underlying reason because the money in and of itself, if it was really just about the money, you'd sell drugs, because that is by far the best profit margin you'll ever, ever, ever find. <laughs> who's, saying, who's saying I don't? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Maybe you actually are motivated by money. And no, you've found I'm not. Core, but <laughs> as, as a right? disclaimer to the listeners, yeah. I definitely, you should know by now that I definitely do not deal drugs. Okay. <laughs> but if a hypothetical human wanted the best possible profit margin, especially if that human were white, frankly, because that lowers the risk. Oh. Like you'd sell drugs that you're, you're never going to find a better profit margin. Yeah. Frankly, you could argue that the surveillance economy is a version of that, but <laughs> I know we've but, had a conversation with this. Yeah. Our Al Balkan, it's, it, yeah, right. I agree. Go on. <laughs> but, but I, I find there's something deeper behind that. And maybe it's something as simple as you're trying to, I don't know, satisfy your dad who never loved you. Like, like this stuff gets very psychological very quickly. Absolutely. But it isn't necessarily just about the money that having been said, if it is just about the money or if what you're purporting, if when, okay, I'll put it this way. When we say business reason, that's code for money, right? That's, that's yeah. a way to justify Absolutely. putting money at the center. Yeah. And I feel like one thing we need to do is to start either using different language or opening up what we mean by business to include and really center social good. Like, I feel like we put those two things in conflict, especially in the States, where yeah. We can have tax designations to kind of, we call it for-profit or non-profit. 
Yeah. And if you think about that as a designation of what a company is, you're already centering money. You're already saying that, well, money is the sole purpose this company exists. And yeah. that's a terrible reason for your company yeah. to exist. Yeah, <laughs> because absolutely. again, if really you want to make money, there's all sorts of, if that's your only goal, there's all sorts of truly horrible stuff you can do that's a much faster path to making money than anything that's good for society. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I want to talk to you about red team and blue team. Okay. <clears throat> is this a David Dylan Thomas? Oh, no, 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 no. This is a military thing and a journalist thing. I love saying okay. that because there's so few things in life where I can say, oh yeah, this is a tactic used by both journalists and the military. And I'll tell you a story. So the very first time I gave the talk that became designed for cognitive bias was at UX Copenhagen. It was my first international talk. Okay. And I was asked to take just a bunch of ideas, loose ideas I had around design and, and, and cognitive bias and turn it really into a 30-minute arc. And in writing it, I discovered, oh, this is really a talk about design ethics. And so I give this talk. And at the time, I didn't know about things like red team, blue team, or assumption audits. And I was basically saying, okay, here are all these biases that we're vulnerable to. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> but at that conference... Johnny Ray Evans, who at the time was working for the British National Lottery, gets up and talks about the tech for good work he was doing and how he had learned about Red Team, Blue Team, and was using it to start evaluating some of the tech for good ideas that were coming across his desk. And Mike Montero, who I met at that conference, was talking about like design ethics and a, and a Hippocratic Oath for designers. That was, yeah, And both of those were like, oh, those need to go in the talk. Yeah. <laughs> so I did not come up with that. I learned about it. I don't know who came up with it. I learned about it from Johnny Ray Evans, though. From Snook. Tech for Good Live. What's that? He works for Snook with Sarah Drummond. Yes, yes. And he does he does the Tech for Good Live podcast with Bex Ray Evans and all that. Like That's right. Yeah. 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 I actually met the, both of them at that, that conference. So it was a good conference to go to. Oh, it was, it was foundational for the book. Like, I thank all of them in the acknowledgments. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. But talk to me around how it works, Red oh, Team, sure. Blue Team, in terms of how it works as regards mitigating the cognitive bias. Absolutely. So the idea is you have a blue team who is going to kind of do the groundwork for the whatever the project is. So they might do the research, they might do the wireframes, they might get as far as a prototype. But before anybody really builds anything or commits to anything, you have a red team that comes in for one day. And the red team's job is to go to war with the blue team and look for any like hidden assumptions, potential causes of harm, more elegant solutions, things that the blue team might have missed because the blue team fell in love with this one core idea and just couldn't let go. Yeah. Okay. So it, it kind of helps bash out uh, any of those kind of assumptions that might have sort of existed during the process of creating those things. And is yeah. that something that happens throughout the design process, throughout the whole kind of... So if I'm controlling the budget, yes, right? So I think there's sort of critical moments during design where you're making steps that are going to be very hard to walk back. And I feel like that's the moment to sort of be like, okay, before we cross this bridge, that's going to be really hard to like undo. Let's have a round of red team. Let's really dig into this. And there's probably two or three critical moments in any project where you can really sort of see those decision points in advance. And like I said, yeah. budget for them and say, okay, make sure I've got these five people have time on this date or this week to do a red team. And then again, three months later, blah, 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 so that it really actually happens. Yeah. So looking at the book, and again, I just opened up LinkedIn there, and there's a stream of things because this is 8CD Berlin, ran an event with you today, and it looks like it was a fantastic success because 
Slack channel is they're pinging me about some stuff about you know David Dylan Thomas. If only they knew I have them. Ah. I myself. <laughs> <laughs> they're all like, we've got files for David. But you know, what what's the thing that you were hoping to achieve when you wrote the book? And you know, what can the design community do to help you realize those things? I mean, I keep I, I keep saying it's hearts, minds, and budgets. Like mm. I said, like I am fairly practical about these things. Because I don't want to, I don't want to create false hope. Hmm. Like an exercise, like that assumption audit I described, like is very easy to create false hope because you can say, okay, what are we going to do about all these people who are involved? Nothing. <laughs> we don't. Yeah. We don't have any budget, right? Yeah. I want to create a framework. I want to give people tools to actually start like changing their design behavior. Like I do a lot of speaking, and I'm fortunate to get a lot of compliments on that speaking and get a lot of feedback on that speaking. And I love hearing that was a great talk. I love hearing. I never thought of that before. But what I love hearing is you have made me change how I think ethically about the design of a product I'm working on. You have given me something I can bring back to my bosses to argue for changing how we design, or I have actually changed how I design, or we are changing how we design. Like That to me is the win, is that actual behavior change, process change in the design community based on principles that center the most vulnerable people that our designs are going to impact. Like That's it. If I can look back a year from now, two years from now, and see, okay, all these companies are doing design differently in a way that centers the most vulnerable populations being impacted by that design. I mean, the the real stretch goal, to be honest, is yeah. a copy of my book up on you know Capitol Hill, <laughs> where people yeah. are because because the design uh, policy is designed as well, and racism is designed, sexism is designed, like all these things are designed, and yeah. having that design process be impacted by these kinds of practices. And having, you know, imagine policy that is designed to center the needs of the most vulnerable. I mean, I thought that was the plan, but apparently it wasn't. So seeing it scale to that level, like that would be the dream. So the book is out, okay? And I have a copy and I'm looking forward to delving into it in more detail. I've started it, which is a common thing that I have uh, going on in my life. I start the books, <laughs> and, and then another another interview comes in, and I start that book. But if people want to get this book, tell me where they can get it. And also, you mentioned there about a bulk discount. Oh, absolutely. So uh, honestly, if you want the book, if you want me to come and speak, if you want to just get in touch, daviddillonthomas.com has links for all of that. So it's one-stop shopping for all things Dave. Yeah. When you go to purchase the book, if you're going to get 10 or more copies, like say you want it to be like required reading at your company or something, 10 or more copies, you start seeing discounts kick in. Right. So you can do that if you want. Uh, but it all starts at daviddillonthomas.com. That's the easiest place. Yeah. And we're going to have the, the David Dylan Thomas talk from This Is Hate City Berlin up on our YouTube in the next couple of days, which will be out by the time this podcast gets out. David, I loved speaking with you today. Are you on Twitter as well, by the way? Uh, yeah, at movie underscore pundit. That's movie underscore P-U-N-D-I-T. Uh, just hit me up there. You drop, you drop that one at the end of the conversation. There's obviously a story why you're a movie pundit. Okay, so my background, honestly, is in none of this. <laughs> I am a filmmaker. I've been making movies ever since I was in high school. Nice. But it, it may shock you to learn, it doesn't pay very well. <laughs> what? I know a guy called Steven Spielberg, and he's yeah, loaded. You'd think, right? But apparently they don't just hand out checks for people who want to make movies. So I've, I've been forced to, and my destitute, to resort to content strategy. <laughs> What's the world coming to? David, it was great speaking to you today. Hopefully chat with you soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. Now, if you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.